Okay, we are recording. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Paul Kudenek. His last name is spelled C-U-D-E-N-E-C, and he's just published a book. Highly recommended. Title of it is The Great Racket: The Ongoing Development of the Criminal Global System. And this is not his first book. He also wrote uh, Fascism Rebranded, Exposing the Great Reset. And uh, he has a lot of information here I haven't seen. I think his perspective comes more from continent or europe but uh, i'm delighted that he agreed to the interview so paul welcome to the show hi thanks very much glad, glad to be here <laughs> awesome so for people who might have not have heard your name can you talk about your background and what led you to put together the great racket yeah sure well i'm um i'm english born though i live in france now i was uh, i worked for many years as a journalist just a humble local journalist but at the same time was um interested in uh, in the wider world beyond the uh, beyond the immediate local area that I was covering and uh for my job and um I've always you know I've always written political articles but um 10 years ago I started uh, taking it a step further and really have been doing that full time I gave up the day job as they say and um I've actually written um I think it's 11 11 or 12 books oh, wow. But um, some of them are more about philosophy. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, um, I was involved in the uh, the anarchist movement in the in the UK for many years. I've sort of been um, excommunicated since uh, for about the last three years because I've not been towing the uh, towing the official line. Uh, so to start with, I was writing more about that, about history, more, you know, more, more of a not particularly connected to what was actually happening in the real world. But gradually I've, I've become dragged into that and sort of turned more back into a journalist than a, than a philosopher or political, general political writer. Right. Considering these events, so many important things are happening in the most recent, you know, two or three years. Can you kind of talk about your book, Fascism Rebranded and, and kind of the Great Reset? Because I, le- I think it leads into the Great Racket. It does. Yeah. Um, well, just the, 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 like the current book, the, it, it was a collection of essays that had already appeared on, on the Internet. Um but so when you put them together, in both cases, it gives a it gives a different picture. It's not just a bits and bobs that randomly describe different uh, different phenomena. It's you can see that there's a thread. And fascism rebranded started with uh, I was talking about about fascism, about historical fascism, and uh, gradually coming to the uh, to the conclusion through my reading that. What we've, uh, what we're experiencing today, and this was even before COVID, this authoritarian neoliberalism is in fact, it is essentially the same thing as fascism. It's not called fascism and it hasn't got the trappings of fascism that we've come to expect, such as, you know, the, the nationalism uh, or the, uh, you know, the sort of racial identity. Well, it has in a sort of back to front way. Right. But, uh, uh, but it's, you know, and that fascism is very close to, uh, fascism was a, was an authoritarian continuation of the, uh, sort of so-called liberal capitalism that was, um, that decided to enforce its rule more in a, in a different way. Um, and the, um, in 2020, obviously that my interest in, in that sort of area accelerated dramatically. I ended up reading 
it's not a, not a pleasant experience. I have to say, I read three books written by Klaus Schwab of the WEF, <laughs> and uh, and realised that he's basically he's basically uh, pushing a fascist uh, agenda. If you use the word fascist, by the way, it's, it's not just fascist. It's a an authoritarian, plutocratic agenda that, that that is not at all interested in democracy and regards the population of the world as just just subjects to be exploited and shunted around to, for the for the benefit of the people with the with all the power and the money. Right. I mean, and they've done well to avoid using the term fascist. I mean, here in the states, I think that we have a fascist government where. There's an obvious fusing of economic power and the state. I mean, I think you even write in your book that the economic powers have even controlled the state like it's flipped. So the state doesn't have power over these capitalistic entities. But in fact, it's the opposite. Right. Yeah. I mean, the state the state has become the tool with which they can impose their uh, their desires on the rest of us they've got they've got the legal backing you know i mean the, the state has been taken over by them over by criminals basically who, who then redefine what they do as as legal and what people who they don't like do as as is illegal and uh, also that you know they virtual they, they use virtue virtue signaling to uh, to suggest that their agenda is is the good one you know it's, it's always this this sort of rainbow colors and the the happy smiley face associated associated with everything they're pushing whereas if you go against it you know all the smears come out your uh your reactionary conspiracy theories right wing you know anything anything that makes you sound right. bad they, they yeah. use that label here in the states a lot far right so if you disagree with them you're very close or alt-right they like to smear you with that or something like that but it is interesting the trappings of the great fascists they've improved so instead of having marches and meetings at night with torches it is this kind of uh there's a psychological element with the kind of uh you know happy-go-lucky multicolored flags of fascism is kind of a, a a better upgrade like a fascism 2.0 i think they're more effective at convincing people that they're not involved in just rapacious uh money grubbing <laughs> would you agree with that yeah exactly it's just it's just it's just camouflage. It's just it's, well, it's, just, it's a lie, actually. It's a, it's a massive whopping lie. Yeah, it's a total deception. Um, right. So, the, I mean, we're kind of in the Schwab. You've read you've endured three of his books, this kind of fourth turning or whatever. But it really is, like you said, like the title of your book, it's a racket, right? Like it doesn't have that. Uh, I mean, you're a human. I mean, I think the average person is now a human resource. They're kind of not viewed as a independent entity. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and they, uh, you know, and the, the word, the term human resource has been used for a long time, but they also use human capital, which says it all, really, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And that's an interesting term too. One of the terms I learned in your book, which I wasn't really, I, mean, I think maybe I've heard it one or two times, is impact capitalism. Can you define that? Mm. It's very important, actually, and quite complicated for, to get your head around if uh, if you haven't come across it before. There's a there's a, an American um, writer called Alison McDowell who's done a, a lot of work on that, and I, I learned a lot from her. Um, basically, it's uh, it's a new market for uh, for the uh, for the global economy in which people and their lives have become the the commodities. Uh, impact investment is investing, putting money into uh, activities that will have an impact on people's lives is the idea. 
It's closely related to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, which set out all the, the, the categories in which impact can be had, such as in, you know, combating uh, gender discrimination or racial discrimination and uh, uh, the sort of fake green environmentalism comes into that as well. So private uh, speculators can um, can put money into improving somebody's life. I'm putting improving in in in, in quote marks there because uh, you know I don't really believe that that's what they're doing. But uh, and uh, and these then become commodities in the same way as um, mortgages can become commodities. You know, with the uh, with the crash back um, whenever that was. 2008 2007 yeah yeah well that was that was the bundles of mortgages that were uh that caused the problem that weren't worth what they said they were and uh people's lives generally are, are, are to be collected bundled together as uh, as targets of investment and of speculation which apparently this is where the the real money is going to come is from trading and speculating on these um on this human capital it's incredible. Yeah. So you're basically like a cow in a, in a cow pasture or something that these people you mentioned, a guy, Ronald Cohen, these people can speculate on and try to so-called improve, but make money off at the same time. Right. Yeah, of course. I mean, that's what it's all about. Uh, I mean, he, he doesn't you know, he doesn't really disguise that. He, you know, he calls it Cohen calls it impact capitalism. And uh, yeah, it's another way of making money. But in order to have this, I'd have this um impact investment and measuring the outcomes of of, the, of this money to, in order to enable them to play their games on the with the trading and so on they have to be able to uh, measure everything about people's lives so if if, if you know if, if, if a child is um, seen as being in a disadvantaged um, uh, classification or at an intersection of um, of uh, several disadvantages perhaps which is uh, a link to this intersectionality idea which is uh, so popular in certain parts of the left but uh, you know in order to uh, measure whether their their investments are going to pay dividends or their their points are going to to rise because of their actions everything has to be measured all the time which is why you know which is why everything has to be online and children's education has to be online everything we do has to be uh, has to be you know recorded on uh, blockchain or whatever it is they use i mean i'm not technically proficient to describe exactly how it happens but it all has to be uh all has to be measurable and they they talk about that a lot about things being measurable outcomes and um and so on so it's so it's all interlinked it's um this the sort of fourth industrial revolution of uh, smart cities of digital enslavement in my opinion is um is very much aligned with both impact capitalism and the uh, the united nations sustainable development goals Right. So the SDGs, right, is the acronym for all that. And it goes back. So it's not just kind of like one of the insights I think I got from your book is it's not just coming out of Switzerland and Schwab. Prince Charles was actually the real person who launched the Great Reset. Is that true or not? Yeah, he officially launched it. Um, Yeah. Yeah, they chose him to launch it. And uh, that was quite I was quite surprised. (laughs) <laughs> to see that uh, i don't think it, it got it was reported in some of the british media at the time but um because i mean up until then i'd been focusing more on klaus schwab and um, you know the sort of fascist continental european fascist link and then suddenly it was uh, i was I, you know i was my focus was turning more to to britain and to the to the to the british empire which 
is now rebranded uh, the Commonwealth. And I saw a lot of the uh, a lot of the traits that I noticed elsewhere as having their origins in the, in the, in the British Empire, uh, even including this whole lie of of doing good. You know that the, well, that was always the excuse for for Britain going around taking over other countries all across the world and stealing people's resources. Well, we, it was an improvement. We were helping these poor people, lifting them out of poverty and bringing them into into the civilized world and the rest of it. So that the hypocrisy goes very deep. Right. And so this new king, he hasn't even been properly enthroned. Right. But he is uh, you. You think that he's kind of going back to kind of more older imperial or empire view of uh, his his status as the king. Do you agree with is that what's happening? I'm not so. I don't think it's going back. No, I think it's always been there. In fact, that um, it's just it's been uh, it's been kept uh it's kept being kept under the surface. People have always, uh, and then Queen Elizabeth was much loved by the by the public in Britain, uh, virtually beyond criticism. Uh, but I think uh, Charles is a more controversial character, so perhaps it's possible to uh, it's possible to to criticise him in a, in a different way. But I mean, the I mean the the, the way the way into um, discovering his role after after the fact that he launched the great reset was to look at his network of um organizations under his name i i don't really think it's him personally to be honest but uh i think he's more of a figurehead for uh for the financial interests of the city of london which are close closely related to the british monarchy and the crown um but he's been used his name the prince's the prince's charities all these prince's trust and i've put them all in the article it is a vast network and it's all they're all the all all the partners in them apart from obviously he's linked to the wef or he wouldn't have he wouldn't have launched the great reset but the partners are all the same all the same companies that you see and all on the lists of you know the, the list of partners of all these global institutions there's always there's always the same names keep cropping up uh, there's banks and arms traders and you know all the right rest. google facebook all these big nine time players mckinsey pops up mckinsey popped up too in uh the whole uh vaccine hesitancy they did tons of papers for, for some of these companies to just get people to take as much of these shots as possible but they pop up under him too under uh Soon to be mm-hmm. King Charles the Third, and I mean, so they're going to like have all this humanitarian nomenclature, or no humanitarian statements, while they're just trying to make as much money as possible. And some of these things are kind of creepy, like vibe check. That was they're going to like check your vibe on your phone for the kids. So they've got they've got some serious plans to put people uh, right in line in the whole hierarchy, the social, you know, what do you call it, the class system. Really, it's kind of a digital mm-hmm. class system. Would you agree with that? Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's you know, it's, it's, it's an updating of a of a very old system of exploitation and the uh, the the imperialism of uh, of, the, of the British um, well, the British Empire has uh, has just taken on a different form, an updated form. Um, they're very pleased when I went. I've, I did an, a separate article actually on the on the Commonwealth and the history of the Commonwealth, and they're they're always very pleased about the number of of people in the under their control you know the 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 quantity of the um 
of the human cattle, the human capital that, that, that they own, and, you know, the age, the age group as well, because there's a lot of, a lot of young people in Africa and India and so on. So it's, right, it's really so just a continuation of <laughs> of what's been going on. Like it's uh, the king overlooking his subjects, right? How how close do you think? That, for example, you know, we get here in the States, I get tons of news from uh, Trudeau in Canada. We hear about Australia. How much influence do you think those those members of the Commonwealth are being influenced by the royal family or Charles or Elizabeth? Do you think they're, they're in lockstep or is they, are they independent? What do you think that the nature of those huge, you know, nations are uh, within the Commonwealth? Well, I think that the last couple of years... Well, those three years have revealed that they're very much under the control of of, of the British crown, the British British Empire. That's so I don't really think it's it's the individuals and the royal family who are, who are directing this. So they're just going along with it and being used by uh, by the uh, the great racket, as I called it. The um, another writer, Ian Davis, describes this. Well, I. I think he's talking about the same thing as the uh, global public-private partnership, which uh, again links back to this fascism idea. And uh, but Canada and Australia uh, and New Zealand were among the worst for the uh, for the COVID restrictions. They almost they were they pushed it further. They didn't they did in Britain. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. They, like here, I mean, uh, uh, Trudeau is kind of like uh, you want to talk about a fascist leader or something like. I mean, you want to talk about a perfect example of kind of like the pleasant image on a fascist leader that I think Trudeau exemplifies that. Like he is a kind of theater kid or whatever. But I mean, he brought out the horses, kicked people off, went after their bank accounts. Incredible stuff. Yeah. So we really saw incredible things in the last three years, like astonishing. Um, but I mean, this isn't really it. I mean, you also write about how this uh, this kind of reset kind of thing that happened. You actually argue that World War One was kind of like this uh, something similar, where there were crimes against humanity in, in an attempt to kind of upgrade the global system. Can you talk about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, <clears throat> I mean, I got the information from 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 reading various books, uh, two books in particular by. Uh, some Scottish writers, a pair of Scottish writers, Doherty and McGregor, um, Jerry Doherty and Jim McGregor, uh, who'd uh, gone into very detailed research on the on the on the build up and the continuation of the First World War. And uh, it's quite clear from what they write and, you know, and through having read around it just to back up, <laughs> back up what they were saying and make sure they weren't making it all up. You know, I did a bit of reading. It's quite clear that there was a deliberate agenda to uh, to provoke a war that would benefit those who'd uh, planned it in a number of different ways. Uh, there was the immediate obvious way they could make money was that they uh, they were the people that owned the arms trade. So obviously a big payday if there's a, there's a war. I mean, on both sides of the war, this is the other thing they were they were they were they were making money out of uh, of the German. Um, arms as well as the uh, as the allied um, arms manufacturer and sales and uh, and oil supplies and things like that. they supplied the same interests supplied a lot of the uh, the raw raw materials and resources that uh, that are burnt up in a great war like that without anybody asking any questions 
And they also were involved in lending the money to the governments to uh, to enable them to uh, to wage these wars, which is uh, very lucrative. And uh, and lending money for the rebuilding, the build back better after the war. And also the uh, which is what you were referring to there, I think that the the war was this um, launching pad into a new kind of society, the post-war period rather than the pre-war, that people had to accept that things weren't going to be the way they were before. And uh, I mean, and in one of Schwab's books, he talks about uh, he talks about with some relish about the idea that uh, the COVID was going to be one of those similar moments after this was the Great Reset book, um, that people in the future would be talking about pre-COVID and post-COVID. So you can see that there's a, I mean, he was, you can see that, we well, can't see directly that it was pre-planned just from that statement, but you can see that certainly they aim to use these big moments in order to push their agenda, to accelerate their agenda in a way that they wouldn't wouldn't get away with necessarily, uh, you know, in a normal time because they come under scrutiny and people don't like it and have, you know, have protests. And uh, so it's, it's these moments of um, fascistic control, imposure of control that enable them to to advance beyond what would have previously been thought possible. Right. I think that happens in all of us. I think that's World War II in the States and the Imperial Wars here all the way up to 2001, Iraq. Yeah. The same, same type of people benefited. Yeah. Asia, exactly. Even the Ukraine right now, too, right? We are, yeah, yeah, well, absolutely. It's, it's. Um, I mean, I very much see see the same sort of things happening there. Like, I mean, such as the involvement of BlackRock in the uh, in rebuilding uh, Ukraine after the war. You know, I just I almost laughed out loud when I thought, well, laughed in a sort of despairing way. You know, it's not it's not funny at all. It's grotesque and vile. You know. Right. So they'll make money building it up and and tearing it down and then building it up. So they're yeah. just. just parasitical yeah. forces it's really incredible i mean yeah uh, people I, really don't understand some of these malignant forces underneath the surface they don't get it no well, states no it's difficult it's difficult to face up to it's difficult for people to to believe i mean it was sometimes it's difficult for me and i've you know i've been i've been a critic of this this sort of setup for, uh, for for many years now, but uh, you know, and also in Ukraine, no doubt they'll be uh, wanting to build uh, when they build back better. They'll be building uh, smart cities and all that infrastructure, you know. So it's uh, that'll that'll help modernize uh, modernize the world according to their specifications. Right. I mean, that, these are very dangerous. These smart cities, and they're starting to do the tester. People said it was never going to happen in the states. They're doing it in Ohio here uh, right now. So. And they've, I think Oxford and the UK, so they're starting to pop up. Can you talk about the danger of this kind of smart city implementation? Yeah. Well, yeah, at the moment they're pretending that it's it's not to do with smart cities. It's just uh, sort of traffic management and uh, reducing car use. But it, but I don't think anyone's going to – I mean, well, some people will fall for it. A lot of people aren't falling for it now because we've seen what happened during the uh, during the lockdowns in COVID. And we've seen that they wanted to bring in these vaccine passports and total surveillance and control. So there's been a reaction in the UK, particularly uh, a lot of demonstrations. Yeah, Oxford was the, la- the latest big one against these 20-minute, uh, 15-minute cities and um, neighbourhoods. 
But um, the agenda for smart cities is is there. You know, nobody could could deny that. And the United Nations produced a, a brochure a few months ago that uh, that I wrote about in the uh, in the book actually in the in the collection of essays, which was called um, "Centering People in Smart Cities." That's what they want. They want to center people. So. For a start, you know, they're not talking about people deciding to go and live in smart cities. They are going to impose that on people. They are going to centre you. And then when you think what the, what the word centre means, it's pretty much the same in that context as concentrate. They want to concentrate people in smart cities. So it's, it's I think concentrate, I think concentration camps, maybe digital concentration yes. camps. Yeah, and now they have the capacity to really data mine people and get some. They already are doing it to everybody. They have data on everybody. But just imagine being in one place where they can just treat you like a like a farm animal, like a, a piece of husbandry. It's incredible, mm-hmm. especially yeah. So I mean, super dangerous. They're not smart. They're smart for the, the for people, the aristocrats or whatever. The uh, I don't know the. Uh, top of the top of the food chain so to speak but for everybody else it'd be a nightmare i mean yeah smart smart is in itself a uh, an acronym with uh, i can't remember it exactly but it's it's got monitoring in there somewhere you know it's, it stands for something but it happens to also mean intelligent uh, but that's not the actual that's not the real meaning right i mean everything is has is orwellian two-faced terms right mm, that yeah. uh, people have to be totally uh totally concerned about concerned about and you kind of go into some of these old names i mean what's your thought on like are the rock are the rothschilds and the rockefellers are they as influential as people say is that a hobgoblin is that theoretical or are they having an impact upon current world events i uh, yeah i asked myself that question a few months ago and read a lot about um particularly about the rothschilds and um I come to the very inconvenient conclusion that they are very much uh, involved in it. I say inconvenient because, of course, the moment you start saying things like that, you're a you're an insane anti-Semitic conspiracy theorist. So, but I'm, I'm not. I don't think it's all, all Jewish people are involved in it, of course. Or you know, that it makes it harder to criticise the Rothschilds because because they're Jewish. But other than that, that's it's not. You know, it's neither here nor there. It's the fact that they are have built up an immense wealth and power, which they have also sought to conceal because they've realized that um, people might not take kindly to the idea that they own so much and dominate so much. So they've uh, they've carefully constructed uh, lots of facades and fronts behind which uh, they hide. I mean, I read them. Um, I read two books solely on the Rothschilds, one in English and one in French. Uh, one, the one, uh, both by respectable um, historians, you know. Um, the one in English is by um, Neil Ferguson. He pronounces his name Neil, uh, who is a, who's a sort of British historian that appears on the television from time to time and is, uh, you know, not very controversial. But he had access to the Rothschilds records. You have to, you have to read carefully what he writes because he's sort of. Um, Sometimes he says, "Oh well, that was that was in the uh, that was in their heyday back in the 19th century, and the, then after that their power waned." And but then if you read through to the end, he he, he does a sort of update on where, where where they are now, and he's basically saying, "Oh yeah, you yeah, know they're still involved in they were still involved in 
privatization in the 1980s with Mrs. Thatcher and they're still involved in this and that. And, and then with my own research, I saw that they were, there was, it was an article, I think, in the New York Times, an American, American newspaper anyway, about um, 10 years ago, I think. And uh, they were talking about one of the latest, youngest members of the Rothschild dynasty who was making significant investments in, in Ukraine, strangely enough. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> so, uh, you know, draw your own conclusions. Mm. Right. So they're still around. I mean, I've seen a picture. I think I forgot was one member of the Rothschild family. He was talking to Prince Charles like Prince Charles was his uh, lackey. Like he had his finger on his chest. I don't remember. I don't remember which member of the family it was, but yeah, like uh, so these are and that one of the Rothschilds is always around with a Marina Abramovich. He's pictured with her and all these other he pops up in strange places. Like I, I know that they're members of the family, but uh yeah, and I don't know if they're I don't even know if they're real practicing Jews. I don't know if they're observant Jews. I mean, they may have been Jewish and I know that they you know, they marry Gentiles and stuff like that. So I I don't know. I don't know if it's they're really that like, you know, whatever. I would, strict I would, about their Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just saying, I mean, I'm you know, I would say that they couldn't believe in the in any religious faith because the religious faith as a you know, is not based on the lying and cheating and stealing is it you know right and i mean it's interesting one of the themes of your book is these people really think they're the best they think that they've reached the apex of darwinism they're the top of um the food whatever food chain or uh, economic or racial you know hierarchy but in fact you you argue the opposite right well yeah i mean uh, <laughs> absolutely yeah i mean uh, i mean that uh, for me they're um just the just the just the fact that they're uh, they're pursuing their own self-interest with complete disregard, I mean, totally callous disregard for the interests of others, whether it be their, you know, just their, the way the way they live, that the people they're depriving people of their freedom, or they're they're destroying their environments to to to, to make more money from their industries, or starting wars to uh, <laughs> to make money. I mean, you know that if. It, the very fact that a group of people could deliberately start wars in order to, to get more, to get richer, you know, which is, I think most people would accept that that, is, that has happened at least once in history. But that, that places them for me, uh, be, uh, you know, in the, in the realm of, um, you know, the closest that human beings can come to being evil. I mean, they're channeling evil. I mean, they're not, I'm not saying they're demons or the devil, but, uh, to, you know, their behavior has placed them in the in that uh, situation of being being able to be described as evildoers i would say yeah i mean and they don't have they kind of seem on the forces of death i think you write that like people don't realize that they are almost like vampires like the kind of economic vampirism where they just try to extract as much energy through money through these people like uh, i think that's true i, I mean you, people have you know, analogize them to vampires, but it's vampiric. A lot of these people, the way they operate pe through people and the way they put them into their corporations is uh, really bad. And also the, their ability to convince the people that what they're doing is right, I think is very powerful element of their power. Would you agree with that? Kind of yeah. fake realities? Yeah. yeah, I mean, it always, I think it's always been, it's always been essential because, um, because people, people are people are basically decent. Most people, they, and which is why I think that, you know, large numbers of the uh, of the of our 
fellow citizens um, don't believe that this these, these things are possibly happening that I describe. They don't think it's possible because they would never do that. They, you know, they're good people. They're, they're kind. You know, they're not perfect, but they they would never never consider causing millions of deaths in order to increase the size of their bank account. They couldn't live with themselves. So um, so um, it's easy for them for the people in in control to um, to convince people that they're they're not doing what they're doing because nobody for most people believe that it's not possible for any any human being to do that. And then they add on they they add, they, they really layer it on. As I was saying earlier, they layer it on with the, with, the, with this virtue signaling and defining defining what they they do as being as being good and what people they don't agree with doing it as being bad and even to the point of you know calling people fascists who oppose what they're doing when they in fact they are they are the real fascists even though it's not fascism uh, you know hitler style it's not german nationalist fascism or italian nationalist fascism but it's it's still it's everything we don't like about fascism right well i think it's interesting i mean i think that the fascism is that the corporate interests control the governments that's really it i mean i think that's the inversion of like a Free and safe society is when the corporations are telling the political politicians what to do. And you can see it writ large with this whole vaccine scandal and stuff like that, because it plays into the whole great reset, the great racket, where these people are making money, poisoning people, giving out a product that doesn't work That's by their own admission. I mean, it's incredible what they've done on a global level. Um, and even Bill Gates himself, like the whole, you know, my foundation is helping humanity. It's the exact opposite. He's a total vampiric parasite. And uh, people need to disabuse themselves that these are good people. I mean, it's really uh, we can do better. And that's really kind of another thing. Like what the real thing is that we could actually live a much better quality of life, a much happier, much more sense of what uh, fulfilling if these people weren't around. Right. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I mean, so what what are your recommendations? I think the, the most um, uh, for what for, for how we might live differently, uh, organise ourselves differently. Um, well, I think decentralisation is for me is the key to it at the moment. We did, which to start with, we've got to. I'm not. I don't know how we would do that. That is the, that is the question, you know. But if if we were in a position in order to pursue any sort of policies, you know, just cutting off from the global from the global control level would be the most essential one. Um, and then just. And I just, they've just built up this infrastructure. When I mean, you think of what, what the, with the United Nations and the IMF and the World Bank and the, you know, the Bank of uh, International Settlements and uh, and the WHO and the rest of it, which is, you know, it's, it's obviously it's becoming a, a de facto world government. So we've got to, the first step would be to pull back out of that. Which I suppose would sound like I'm uh, suggesting a sort of nationalism, but uh, but I'm not really because I believed in taking uh, in t- in taking decentralisation further than that. I believe in democracy. Actually. We need to we need to reverse the flow of power so that it comes from from people, from the communities, and flows upwards where people cooperate at a certain, at different levels, rather than having this top down power which is just imposed on everybody by force, by lies, by all the means that they can. But um, how we'd actually, you know, how we'd actually make this happen is an, is, an, is another question. 
Right. I mean, I'm kind of an advocate of like getting back to the land, growing your own food. And then a lot of this stuff like you, uh, a lot of these things would wither on the vine if nobody acquiesced, if nobody agreed to kind of these things. I think it would change a lot of uh, a lot of, you know, uh, being kind of at the bottom of the pyramid. The pyramid would invert. I totally agree with you that like uh, the capital state, the capital S state is just way too big. And I mean, imagine being centralized. I mean, you, you say it's a de facto global government. I mean, it's even more detached. I mean, the WHO is trying to do a huge uh, sovereignty power grab right now. I mean, it's just incomprehensible, the catastrophic effects of this type of things with this great racket going on, what they could do. They've already done it, really, by giving certain drugs and, and downplaying free drugs and things like that. They've already caused tremendous harm and just, I mean... It's just not a great situation. No, but um, at least people are becoming aware of the situation, which yeah, perhaps right. wasn't the case a few years ago. I agree. Uh, John, we are at the 37-minute mark. Is there anything you'd like to add? I mean, there's a lot more in this book. We didn't even get to kind of some of the other chapters and some of the things. I highly recommend people check it out. This book is free, right? Yeah, it's a PDF, yeah. It's uh, from the... Uh, from the Winter Oak site, which is uh, winteroak.org.uk, and uh, there's a there's a number of them. And all the books, all my books are uh, are available as uh, as free down free PDFs that you can download. In fact, uh, as well as some of them, you can you can you can buy in hardback in a hard copy form, and not that not that one, not the collections of essays because the because the essays have already been on the internet, so it's it's a slightly different product, but. Um, Right. And people can get it and just read an essay at a time. You can get a lot of this information. You've done the, the the research. It's there. I mean, and that that website is where they can get your books. And you're on social media, too, right? Like you're on Twitter. Um, do you have a website? Uh, oh, that's the a, website. Pers- a personal website. Okay. Uh, Paul, I'm on Substack as well. Paul, Paul, Paul neck Substack. Okay, and on Twitter, it's uh, at Winter Oak Press. So, yeah. So where's the best place if people have any follow-up questions or anything or want to reach out to you? Where's the, where would you recommend they do that? Um, you can write to uh, to Winter Oak. Um, Winter Oak at greenmail.net. Greenmail.net. Or uh, my, my email is kudenek at riseup.net. Kudenek. Last name is spelled C-U-D-E-N-E-C. Is there anything you'd like to add before we uh, come to an end? Uh, no, not really. I mean, we've uh, we've covered quite a bit of ground, and it's obviously you know there's obviously a lot more that could be said. But yeah, thanks very much. That was a, a good conversation. Yeah, agreed. Uh, thanks a lot for agreeing to the interview again. Author's name is Paul Kudenek, C-U-D-E-N-E-C. We talked about his recent publication, The Great Racket: The Ongoing Development of the Criminal global system. So thanks so much for your time. Thank you. All right, stay there. Stop this.